Welcome to Anchored by Truth, brought to you by Crystal Sea Books. In John 14.6, Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Our goal is to encourage everyone to grow in the Christian faith by anchoring themselves to the secure truth found in the inspired, inerrant, and infallible Word of God. For forty days the rain poured down without stopping, and the water became deeper and deeper until the boat started floating high above the ground. Finally, the mighty flood was so deep that even the highest mountain peaks were about seven meters below the surface of the water. Genesis chapter 7 verses 17 through 20 Contemporary English Version Hello, I'm Victoria Kay. Welcome to Anchored by Truth, brought to you by Crystal Sea Books. We're very glad to be with you today as we continue the series we recently started on Anchored by Truth that we are calling 10 Facts Every Christian Needs to Know. In the studio today, we have R.D. Fierro. R.D. is an author and the founder of Crystal Sea Books, and he is the one picking the facts we are covering in this series. R.D., why did you entitle this series, 10 Facts Every Christian Needs to Know? I'm sure many listeners would think that there are far more than just 10 facts that are pertinent to the Christian faith. There are surely thousands of facts that are important to a thorough understanding of Christianity. Just on what we've covered here on Anchored by Truth, we've probably talked about hundreds or thousands of facts that help demonstrate that the Bible is the inspired, inerrant, and infallible Word of God. Well, I'd also like to greet all the listeners that are joining us here today on Anchored by Truth, whether they are listening to the broadcast or the podcast. Now, you're absolutely right that there are thousands, maybe tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of facts that are relevant to the Christian faith. But I'm not so sure that a series entitled A Thousand Facts You Need to Know would be very appealing to most listeners. Most people today are so busy that they really need help with sorting through the huge volume of information that comes at them daily through a media-charged, internet-driven kind of world. And so that's what we try to do on Anchored by Truth. We sort through a lot of information, and then we try to select key items that listeners can grasp very readily and that they can hold on to those things to help them build their faith. We know that for many people today, just getting to work and dinner on the table can feel like an accomplishment. And we know that there are a lot of Christians who have a sincere desire to strengthen and deepen their faith, but the urgencies of life can derail those intentions. We want to help people fulfill that ambition of growing their faith while they continue to keep up with all their other priorities. And as we talked about last time on Anchored by Truth, not all facts have an equal bearing on important faith matters. For instance, the Bible tells us that there were 70 descendants of Jacob that went down into Egypt at the start of the Israelite sojourn there. That's a simple historical fact that we learn about from Exodus chapter 1, verse 5. Well, the Bible also tells us that God created the heavens and the earth. Again, that's a very straightforward historical fact. Both of those facts are relevant to our faith. But I don't think that most people would regard God's instantaneous creation of the universe out of nothing 
and the number of people that happened to go from Israel down to Egypt at the start of the Israelite sojourn there, I don't think most people would regard those two facts as being equally important to our understanding of God. The most important historical fact of all time is unquestionably the fact of Jesus' resurrection because the validity of the entire Christian faith is dependent on that one fact. The point of all this is that we have to be discerning when we look at and especially when we communicate our faith. Certain facts that are going to come to our attention are absolutely essential. They're going to have a profound implication to our faith, to the content of our faith, to the application of our faith, to the trustworthiness of our faith. It's good for Christians to know about the Hebrews' period of captivity in Egypt and their subsequent deliverance, but it frankly is more important for everyone to know that Jesus died for their sins and that he rose from the dead, proving that the Father was pleased with his sacrifice. All we want listeners to remember is that not all facts are equally important when it comes to looking at our faith, growing in our faith, and developing our faith so that we can have confidence in our faith. What we want people to understand is that there are certain facts that are critical to them understanding and having confidence in their faith. At one point in our history, people accepted much about the Christian faith without much controversy. But those days are past. Today, just about every substantive point of our Christian faith is being attacked by somebody somewhere. And there is no book of the Bible that is attacked more than the book of Genesis, the first book of the Bible. It's become very plain over the past 200 years that part of Satan's plan is to destroy confidence in God as creator. Satan knows that if he can get people to doubt God as being necessary to the existence of the universe, he can then get people to doubt God in every other meaningful way. That's why Satan has been unrelenting in promoting the idea that the universe could spring into being from a Big Bang and that life could spring into being by the random collision of inanimate particles. Yes, but the bad news for Satan is that the truth is opposed to him. And more and more people are waking up to that fact. Empirical observations of the universe tell us that the assumptions behind the Big Bang aren't tenable and the assumptions behind random chaotic activity producing the first specified complexity that's required to build a living cell aren't tenable either. That's why we began this series with the first two facts that we did. The first fact that we discussed that every Christian needs to know is that science confirms that the universe and Earth are thousands of years old, not millions or billions of years old. The second fact we covered was the complexity of life makes it impossible that life could have arisen as a result of the random collision of atoms and molecules, even if you could explain the existence of the atoms and molecules to begin with. We started with these two facts because they get to the heart of whether the opening chapters of the book of Genesis, which are the opening chapters of the Bible, is in fact true. So where do you want to go next? What is fact number three? Well, fact number three that Christians should know is that there is solid scientific evidence that the tallest mountains on earth were underwater at one time. Ammonite fossils, those are basically fossils of squids that have coiled shells, are found in limestone layers very high up in the Himalayas in Nepal, uh, very near the top of Mount Everest, in fact. 
Now, this, of course, supports the biblical account of the global flood described in the Bible. Now, the fact that marine fossils are found near the summit of Mount Everest does not mean that Mount Everest was there before the flood. So, the ocean waters didn't have to rise over 29,000 feet above the current sea level to cover Mount Everest. Mount Everest at that point, if it existed at all as a mountain, was probably considerably shorter. And instead, the sedimentary layers that now make up the Himalayas were first deposited probably on the continent during the flood itself. And then those sedimentary layers, they buckled and uplifted near the end of the flood to form the towering Himalayan mountains that we see today. So we don't have to believe that the water rose 29,000 feet to believe in a global flood. We can understand that the surface of the earth was changing dramatically during that global flood, and what we see today is the result of all of those changes, including the height of Mount Everest. But the fact that there are marine fossils found near the summit of Mount Everest demonstrates that at one point, that part of the world, that part of Mount Everest, was underwater. Fossils are one of the best evidences of a global flood, especially when you consider how many fossils are found. For example, we don't find marine creatures such as fish, clams, and corals buried and fossilized on the seafloor where they once lived. Instead, we find most of them buried in sedimentary rocks on the continents and even on high mountains. For that to happen, the ocean waters had to totally flood the continents. And that's exactly what the Bible describes during the global flood. But the mere fact that the fossils of marine creatures are found high in the Himalayas does not mean that all geologists accept the idea of a biblical, worldwide flood, does it? No, it doesn't. Secular geologists will acknowledge that the Himalayas were underwater at one time. I mean, they really can't deny that. But they have an entirely different hypothesis for why we find marine fossils on Mount Everest. And that hypothesis would be... Well, secular geologists explain the presence of the Everest marine fossils something like this. The marine creature fossils on Mount Everest were formed in a relatively shallow part of the ocean during the Ordovician period. And that was supposedly over 400 million years ago. Conventional scientists say that the Ordovician period lasted for almost 45 million years, starting around 490 million years ago, and then ending about 445 million years ago. And the conventional scientists believe that during this period that the area that is north of the tropics was almost entirely ocean. Scientists believe that at that time, most of the world's land was collected into a southern supercontinent called Gondwana. And many scientists believe that the area that contains the Himalaya Mountains today was once attached to that supercontinent, right? Right. Many scientists believe that the area under the land that now comprises the Himalayas was formed under the ocean on the northern margin of India when India was still attached to Western Australia as part of that supercontinent. Then the theory goes that about 130 million years ago, India began drifting away from Gondwana and drifted northwards until it collided with the Eurasian tectonic plate between about 55 and 34 million years ago. And the scientists believe that the collision of those continents resulted in a massive uplift of the Earth's crust. So they think that sedimentary rocks that formed part of northern India were pushed upwards by these colossal tectonic forces. Those sedimentary rocks contain the fossils that are now found on top of Mount Everest. And, in fact, NASA 
believes that the presence of limestone and marine fossils lifted from the once shallow seabed to the top of the Himalayas is evidence that plate tectonics is a viable explanation for why the Earth's surface appears the way it does. Geologists also say that the Himalayas continue to rise as a result of the colliding tectonic plates. Yes. So the views by conventional, secular geologists and the views by Christian geologists agree in certain respects. Both groups agree that the Himalayas were, at one point, underwater. Both groups agree that there are tectonic plates that support the Earth's continents that have moved in the past and likely still move. And there is general agreement that at one time there was a much larger land mass in existence on the Earth that has now separated into what we call the continents. Both groups agree that the Himalayas were formed by uplift forces. Well, the chief areas of disagreement are on the time frames and on the proximate causes of the uplift. Secular geologists believe the tectonic and geologic activity that formed the current continents and the Himalayas occurred over tens or hundreds of millions of years. Christian geologists believe that the Genesis Flood accounted for the separation of the supercontinent when, as the New International Version puts it, quote, springs of the great deep burst open, unquote. That's Genesis chapter 7, verse 11. Many Christian geologists believe that it is what is called, quote, the catastrophic plate tectonics, unquote. One implication of the catastrophic plate tectonics is that the movement of the tectonic plates would be substantially faster than today. Yes. Now, we don't have time to go in today to the mechanics of what's called catastrophic plate tectonics, but anyone who wants to investigate that subject further, and I would highly recommend that, they can get a copy of Dr. Jonathan Sarfati's 800-page commentary on the first 11 chapters of Genesis, and that's entitled The Genesis Accounts. Great book. I've got one. I'd recommend that all serious Christians get one. Now, one consequence of this much faster tectonic plate movement is that the continents that we see today would have arrived in their current positions on the Earth's surface in a much shorter period of time than the secular geologists believe. And the uplift forces would have been acting on the material when it was still soft enough to be pushed upward relatively quickly. It's called catastrophic plate tectonics because in comparison with the things we see going on around us today, the forces in play, the activity on the Earth's surface, and the movement of rocks and sediment would have been truly catastrophic, both in size and timing. Of course, a lot of this movement was going on under the water, so an ocean liner-sized arc would have still been able to float and remain a refuge for its passengers. And we can also note that the phenomenon of high-altitude marine fossils isn't unique to the Himalayas. Whale fossils and evidence of other marine animals have been found in many other mountain ranges, such as the Andes Mountains, for example. So, we have these two competing views of how these marine fossils could be found close to the top of the highest mountain on Earth. Is there any way to determine which of the views is most likely to be correct? That's an excellent question. Thank you. I'm good with questions. In fact, that is the question, because it goes straight to the heart of the reason that we're doing this 10 Facts Every Christian Should Know series. Because as in so many cases, as we're going through these facts, we are faced with competing truth claims. The Bible tells us about a global flood, 
But the secular contention is that there was no global flood and that the Earth's features that we see have been produced slowly, gradually, and uniformly. Uniformitarianism says that the present is the key to the past. The rate of uplift in the tectonic plate movement we see today is the same rate that has always existed. Exactly. So let's get back to the time periods that we heard about earlier. The secular notion is that the fossils themselves were formed in relatively shallow water over 400 million years ago, and then they moved to their current position about 35 to 55 million years ago. That's what the conventional scientists tell us. But there's a huge problem with this conventional view. And that is? Erosion. Erosion can be defined as the group of natural processes including weathering, dissolution, abrasion, corrosion, and transportation by which material is worn away from the Earth's surface. Erosion simply means that every day every inch of the Earth's surface is being scoured or scraped, and eventually all of that material will wind up in a body of water somewhere. While wind and mechanical activity produces some erosion, Water is the main culprit that dissolves many minerals and loosens soil and rock from the landscape, transporting them to the ocean. Day after day, year after year, like an endless procession of freight trains, the rivers of the world cart unimaginable tons of decomposed rock across the continents and dump it in the ocean. By comparison, the amount removed by winds, glaciers, and ocean waves pounding the coastline is small. Water can do its eroding work once it falls as rain or snow, and all that rain or snow is eventually going to collect in some kind of a drainage basin. Now, by sampling the mouth of a river, which is a drainage basin, we can measure the volume of water discharged from the basin and the amount of sediment that it carries. Now, it's not easy to measure or to obtain exact volumes of erosion, But nevertheless, sedimentologists have researched many of the world's rivers and calculated how fast the land that they serve is disappearing. The measurements show that some rivers are excavating their basins by over three feet of height in a thousand years. And while others, which have a much slower rate of erosion, they excavate less than a tenth of an inch per thousand years. Well, the average height reduction for all the continents of the world is about 2.4 inches per thousand years. There's a good article about the problem erosion presents for the idea of continents or land masses being hundreds of millions of years old on creation.com, the website for Creation Ministries International. The article points out that if erosion has continued at the average rate, the North American continent would have been leveled in 10 million years. This is ridiculously short time compared to the supposed 2.5 billion year age of the continents. Even at the slowest estimated rate of four one hundredths of reduction per 1,000 years, the continents should have vanished long ago. Continents have an average height of about 2,000 feet, and erosion will be faster in areas where there are steep slopes and deep valleys such as mountain ranges. And so these erosion rates not only erode the idea of a billion-year-old continent, but also crumble the concept of ancient mountains. Erosion rates of 39 inches per thousand years are common in the alpine regions of, say, Papua New Guinea, or Mexico, or the Himalayas. One of the fastest recorded regional height reductions is 750 inches per thousand years from a volcano in Papua New Guinea. 
The Yellow River in China could flatten a plateau that's as high as Everest in 10 million years. So mountain ranges in Western Europe and the Appalachians of Eastern North America, the existence of those kind of mountain ranges is even harder to explain because they're not anywhere near as high as Everest, and yet they're supposed to be several hundred million years old. Well, if erosion had been going on for this long, those mountain ranges should not exist. So if erosion is a problem for even explaining the existence of mountain ranges at all, it's a bigger problem for how delicate structures such as fossils could still exist near the tops of very high mountains, such as the shellfish fossils near the top of Mount Everest. Yes, and the problems for the conventional explanation just keep compounding. One explanation for how high mountains could still exist after tens or hundreds of millions of years have passed is that uplift activity is still occurring. But this explanation would not help at all with the presence of the shellfish fossils on Mount Everest. The shellfish fossils are embedded in sediment layers that began being lifted out of the ocean, according to the conventional explanation, 30 to 50 million years ago. Because even the secular scientists believe that these fossils were initially formed in a relatively shallow sea. So they had to be covered by sediment at that time, otherwise the fossils would never have even formed. Well, if the fossils hadn't been covered by sediment, they would have disintegrated long ago. But if the uplift had been going on steadily for 50 million years, which kept Mount Everest at the same height, the sediments that contained the fossils would still have eroded long ago. The point is that when we're trying to decide whether the conventional, secular explanation for the existence of shellfish fossils on Mount Everest or the biblical explanation is more likely, the secular explanation has one huge problem that the biblical explanation does not. Erosion. Uniformitarianism says that the present is the key to the past and things are taking place today the way they have always taken place. But if that's true then erosion has been taking place the entire time at the same rate that it is today. But erosion taking place for tens of millions of years poses enormous questions for things that we see around us today, like high mountains with crisp, sharp peaks and marine fossils near those peaks. Exactly. But erosion poses no problems for the biblical explanation. Biblical geologists believe that the Genesis flood occurred about 4,500 years ago and the fossils were formed when vast amounts of dirt, rock, and mud were being moved around by the floodwaters, which were laying down sediment layers very quickly all around the world. And the marine fossils near the top of Everest, that's not the only evidence that confirms that the Genesis account of the global flood was true. There's an article on the Answers in Genesis website that points out that there are countless billions of plant and animal fossils that are buried in extensive graveyards all around the world. For instance, there are graveyards that have billions of straight-shelled chambered nautiloids of all different sizes, and those have been found fossilized with other marine creatures in a 7-foot thick layer within the Redwall limestone of the Grand Canyon. And this fossil graveyard stretches for an incredible 180 miles across northern Arizona and into southern Nevada. It covers an area of at least 10,500 square miles. Every continent contains sedimentary rock layers laid down by the catastrophic flood conditions. Many of these sediment layers can be traced all the way across continents and even between continents. 
For example, the chalk beds of southern England, well known as spectacular white cliffs along the coast, can be traced west and north across England and appear again in northern Ireland. In the opposite direction, those same chalk beds can be traced across France, the Netherlands, Germany, Poland, southern Scandinavia, to Turkey, and as far as Kazakhstan. The same chalk beds, with the same fossils and the same distinct layers above and below them, are also found in the Midwest USA, from Nebraska to Texas, and from Alabama and Arkansas to Colorado. They also appear in the Perth Basin of Western Australia. And similarly, the sedimentary rock walls exposed in the Grand Canyon, they're not unique to that region. For almost 60 years, geologists have recognized that these strata belong to three very thick, distinctive sequences of sedimentary rock layers that can be traced all across North America. The lowermost horizontal sedimentary layer in Grand Canyon is the Tapete Sandstone. Well, along with its equivalents, the Tapete Sandstone covers much of the United States and parts of Canada and Greenland. But it can not only be traced across North America, but also beyond to Israel, Jordan, and Saudi Arabia. Well, only ocean waters that were rising to sweep across the entire face of the globe, as the Genesis Flood describes, that's the only way you can reasonably explain these continental-scale sedimentary layers. All of those lines of evidence demonstrate the same thing. The highest mountains on Earth were at one point underwater. Of the two competing explanations for how that happened, the secular or the biblical, the secular suffers from a major unanswered question. How could sedimentary layers persist in a hostile erosion environment for tens of millions of years? This challenge does not plague the biblical explanation. Yet the secular explanation is far and away the one that is chosen by most geologists today. And as we have said many times in this series, that goes back to the compulsive power of a person's starting set of axioms. Most scientists look at the age of the Earth or the universe from the starting point that it is billions of years old. That's what their training and education have taught them to believe. That's what they had to believe to get their degrees, to get their funding, and to get approval from their colleagues. So when it comes to finding evidence that doesn't agree with their set of starting axioms, those scientists have to start to find a suitable explanation for how their axioms can remain in place, regardless of whether there is an alternative, reasonable explanation that fits the evidence, but not their axioms. In other words, all too often, they're going to follow their axioms rather than following the evidence. Ideas have consequences. And one of those consequences is that certain ideas retain compulsive power over people's minds and souls, even when the idea is at odds with reality, with the truth. That's why we must ensure that we are all well-grounded and informed. First, to ensure that we can sustain our faith in times of trial. And second, to serve as the salt and life for a culture that dies without the light of truth. This sounds like a great time to go to the Lord in prayer. Today, let's listen to a prayer for our Christian brothers and sisters who live in lands that are hostile to the gospel and to their faith. And let's remember always to pray regularly for them, because the Bible assures that God hears and responds to the sincere prayers of His faithful children. Prayer for Persecuted Christians Father of comfort and deliverance, You are a merciful God, and you have abundant compassion for those who suffer and are afflicted. 
Lord, we come to you to pray for our Christian brothers and sisters who are being oppressed, imprisoned, beaten, and killed because they belong to you. We grieve for them and we cry out to you on their behalf. We know that you will never leave or forsake any of your children and that you know their sorrows better than we will ever know them. Yet we cannot remain silent and so we plead with you to grant healing and release for them all. Help us to know what we can do to be a voice for those who cannot speak for themselves and give us wisdom to know how we can help them. Help us to be generous with financial support, persistent in prayer, and committed to their cause. Cause our national leaders to act to improve their lot in accordance with your will. Raise up leaders who are willing to stand for you without compromise or flinching. We pray that you would cause the release and delivery of those whom you would have delivered. For those who remain in suffering, be a powerful presence in their lives. Grant them the peace that can only come from your special touch. We long for the day when all your people will stand united at your feet and where the tribulations of this world will be far behind. We and all your people pray, now and always, only in Christ's holy name. Amen. We hope you'll be with us next time, and we hope you'll take some time to encourage some friends to tune in also, or listen to the podcast version of this show. If you'd like to hear more, try out crystalseabooks.com, where... We're not perfect, but our boss is.